Hello everybody and welcome to the next installation of your COVID surge data-driven webinar. My name is Anil Bangu. I'm a consultant surgeon at University Hospital Birmingham in the UK. And I'm the, the chief investigator of the COVID surge platform. And it's a pleasure to have everyone here today. I'm going to introduce our panel of speakers um, by their first names and then ask them to introduce themselves. Um, so we'll start with Haytham. Are you there? Hey, good morning, everybody from Boston. Um, Haytham Kafirani. I'm Associate Professor of Surgery at Harvard Medical School and the Director of the Center for Outcomes and Patient Safety in Surgery. And I'm very glad to be here with you today. Thank you. And, and Haytham's been coordinating a lot of US activity going into the COVID surge platform. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, can we go to, my, my, to Stephen in Ghana? Yes, uh, I'm Stephen Taburi, uh, Professor of Surgery, uh, Head of Department of Surgery at uh, University for Development Studies School of Medicine and Health Sciences. And I'm also the Vice Dean and uh, I'm the Head of Department of Surgery at the Tamale Teaching Hospital as well. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you, thank you. Stephen and I have been working for many years on the Global Surge's randomized portfolio and, and he's leading COVID Surge Ghana. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you. Helen, are you there? Yes, hi. Well, um, I'm Helen Mohan. I'm a surgical trainee and I'm the COVID Surge coordinator for the Irish Surgical Research Collaborative. And thank you for coordinating your networks into COVID Surge. It's a pleasure to, to have you here. Uh, Elizabeth. Hi, I'm uh, one of the um, clinical research fellows, uh, PhD doctorate fellows from Birmingham. And it's part of the central management team for the, for the whole platform. Um, Rohan, are you there? Hi everyone. Yeah, I'm Rohan, I'm one of the medical students from the University of Birmingham, helping out with the projects. And again, Rohan is, is underselling himself a bit, but he's one of the central management team who is helping with all, a lot of the technical issues. Uh, and finally, Dimitri. Uh, hi, my name is Dimitri, a research fellow here in Birmingham. Um, I've been involved in the study, as you all know. Look forward to, to discussing the paper with you. So, and that's why we're here. We're here to congratulations to the whole network um, for the publication of the COVID surge's first output in The Lancet, which went live on Friday night. It, as we as we say all the way through, this is a muted congratulations because although it's great to have a high impact paper, we are aware that the mortality rate in that paper was was high, and so that paper is built upon some misery for patients and their families, and we are all aware of that, and we're grateful to our patients for going into these studies, but um, nonetheless, it is a significant achievement to be in the Lancet. And Dimitri's been, been, been driving that and, and congratulations to him and all of you. The point of this webinar today is to delve a little bit deeper into the data and give some context to that data. And we're gonna spend quite a lot of time answering questions. We've been taking questions from around the world over the weekend and we've got them listed down um, and we're gonna split them into those we can answer, but also highlight those we can't answer to inform your practice. We're going to start with a summary of the um, Q3 
key findings from the Lancet paper. And so Lizzie Lee is going to do that. So Lizzie, over to you, please. Thanks, Anil. Um, this is a summary of the paper, Mortality and Pulmonary Complications in Patients with Perioperative SARS-CoV-2 Infection, uh, published in The Lancet. So just to remind everyone, this was an international multicenter cohort study, and the inclusion criteria was perioperative SARS-CoV-2 infection within seven days before the operation, the index procedure, or 30 days after. This could have been diagnosed by a laboratory swab test, radiological diagnosis, or clinical diagnosis of SARS-CoV-2. Our outcomes, primarily, we were looking at 30-day mortality and secondary, looking at 30-day pulmonary complications, which included uh, pneumonia, ARDS, and unexpected post-operative ventilation, which meant any patient that was for planned extubation uh, who went on to have prolonged or was reintubated. In the first round of analysis that um, is in this paper, we had 1,128 patients uh, from 235 hospitals from 24 countries. And um, this was uh, a collaborative effort from uh, over 1,200 collaborators. And the demographics of the patients, um, just over a quarter of them had pre-operative SARS-CoV-2 diagnosis. So the other three quarters were diagnosed post-operatively. 94% were uh, diagnosed with laboratory or CT confirmed. So uh, only 6% was clinical diagnosis alone. 74% were emergency procedures and 55% was for benign disease, uh, where there was also 25% for cancer and 20% for trauma. 33% was for gastrointestinal procedures, um, but we also had 27% uh, from orthopedics and 8% um, from cardiothoracics. And in fact, this was a pan speciality and we had uh, cases entered from all surgical specialities. And to remind everyone of the results from all of our patients from all specialities undergoing all types of procedures, which was 1,128. 1, the overall mortality, 30-day mortality, was 23.8%. When this was divided into elective surgery and emergency surgery, there was um, significantly more patients uh, uh, who received emergency surgery uh, who died uh, with mortality 25.6%. However, elective surgery also remained high at 18 0.9%. When this was broken down to pre-operative or post-operative SARS-CoV-2 diagnosis, um, the mortality rates were more similar with uh, pre-operative um, uh, diagnosis at 21.3% and post-operative at 25.6%. Uh, in response to uh, questions that we've received regarding um, major and minor surgery, um, we wanted to clarify uh, beginning of this that uh, mortality for major surgery was significantly higher at 27.1% um, but for minor surgical procedures it was also um, relatively high at 16.4%. Um, and then furthermore uh, as we've received some questions uh, about the anesthetic type, um, local anesthesia, regional anesthesia and general anesthesia all had relatively similar um, mortality outcomes from 30%, uh, 30.6, 24.8 and 24.8 for the respective different types of anesthesia.
Moving on to pulmonary complications. So from all of our patients, those that did have pulmonary complications was over 50%. And of those 50% patients who had pulmonary complications, mortality was quite high at 38%. This was broken down further in the analysis and 40% uh, uh, of patients had pneumonia with quite high mortality rates again. ARDS at 14% uh, of patients had that with mortality at 63%. And um, to put this into a bit more context, once again, normally for all surgical operations, the expected rate of pulmonary complications is around 8%. And of those deaths, uh, mortality should be uh, is around 10%. So these are markedly higher than um, what was known from uh, surgical outcomes previous. And finally, unexpected ventilation. Again, um, quite high mortality at 41.7%. So looking at the 30-day mortality by subgroup, um, we have found that um, the significant factors was patient age. They were more at risk um, for 30-day mortality if they were over 70. Uh, they were more at risk for emergency procedures and more at risk if they were receiving a major operation and um, also if they were a male patient as well. Um, so um, again, to put into context, um, some of the uh, emergency laparotomy uh, mortality data from pre-COVID era um, quoted uh, mortality at around uh, 15 to 70%, reaching to 24 at uh, 30 days. And this was, uh, include, so 24% included the very high risk group patients. In our cohort, we found that mortality rate for, uh, could be as high as 44% uh, for those over 70 male patients receiving emergency major procedures. So uh, significantly higher. So the take-home messages are that in patients with perioperative SARS-CoV-2 infection, overall mortality is 24% and pulmonary complications are 51% or much higher. Most of the deaths that did occur were due to pulmonary complications. Elective surgery is also associated with a substantial risk and men over 70 undergoing emergency or elective major surgery are at particular risk. However, what we have found that overall, all patients are at greater risk than the, they were in the pre-COVID-19 era. Okay, thank you. Well done, Lizzie, and congratulations on that presentation and thank you. Um, so that is the world's first data, really unpicking the biology of the disease, the disease being a SARS-CoV-2 infection at the time or around when patients are undergoing surgery. And we can see it takes an aggressive course. So what I'd like to do is go to our, our, our three um, invited panellists and, and just ask them if they can give us a brief summary of what this data should mean to practice and how they're going to to begin to use this data to inform their practice. So let's go in reverse order. Could we start with Helen, please? Sure. I think this data is really useful because it quantifies for us that there is a significant risk associated with uh, having COVID and undergoing surgery. And I think it really emphasizes the importance of public health measures to reduce COVID transmission in the community 
and of our efforts to ring fence uh, surgical services to have dedicated clean pathways to screen patients and to do everything we can to try and reduce transmission um, of COVID to patients perioperatively. I think for me, that's the take home message from this paper. Thank you very much. Stephen, could I ask you the same? How are you going to use this information um, in your hospital in Ghana and around Ghana? Yes, uh, thank you very much. Uh, I think for us, uh, this, uh, the resource is very important for us. Uh, if you look at the data, where the data was collected, mostly from UK, Italy, and Spain, that's from uh, Europe. Uh, however, in Ghana now, the cases are increasing. As of today, we have 8,070 cases of COVID confirmed. As the number is going, is going to increase, what it means is that some of these patients may need surgery. And we need these results to start developing uh, preventive measures uh, to reduce the pulmonary complication. And we need team approach to work with all other uh, specialties in improving uh, the outcome, especially the pulmonary complications. Again, what is important for us is if you look at the data, majority of the cases were diagnosed post-surgery. So it means that when you are approaching every patient in our setting with the numbers increasing, it means you have to take all the precautions, precaution measures, appropriate PPEs, so that you don't assume in that the patient has not been diagnosed with COVID and therefore is assumed to be COVID positive until discharge. So that's a very good important. The other important we want to see, you see that we are planning a randomized control trial, trying to reduce prophylaxis using medication to prevent uh, pulmonary complications. And this data really goes to prove that the study, the uh, randomized control trials, COVID study we plan to do is very important and it has come at the right time. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for that timely summary. And uh, Haytham, could you perhaps um, comment on a, a busy emergency practice and what this data means for you? Yes, so I actually think this study raises a lot more questions than it answers, it answers, and that's good. I think the two take-home messages for, are different for emergency and elective surgery. Quickly on elective, and then I'll tell you my opinion about emergency as we've been immersed in it in the US. For elective surgery, I think the, uh, it, it, it gives the rationale why elective surgeries were canceled all over the world in the middle of the pandemic and gives also a roadmap for places like Brazil and Russia that are going through their peaks now that that was the sound decision. When you talk about 19% mortality in elective surgery, compared to pre-COVID, maybe around 1% or less, that's a very sobering number to think of. So a lot for people in the, in the other places of the world to take the lesson from, from Europe and from the US about this. For emergency surgery, the, the mortality that we quote on a lot of studies before COVID is around somewhere between 10 and 15%. So it has doubled at least, if not more, and we, to, to be honest, those numbers reflect our experience in, our, in my own hospitals. We did have to do a lot of emergency surgery cases. Some of them were due to COVID, 
complications, and some of them were just uh, other emergency in the setting of an asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic COVID. But those numbers are at least double or triple what we are used to. So also gives a caution that even emergency surgery, if there is an alternative and there are a lot of gray areas, perhaps you should move the needle a little bit more towards non-operative, whether it's acute appendicitis that can be safely managed with antibiotics or whether it's, whether it's acute cholecystitis that you can delay the laparoscopic cholecystectomy. I think it, it's at least worth thinking a little bit more about it before you take the patient to the operating room. Yeah, and, and I, I agree with that, that what this, what this study really allows us to do as surgeons is to think very carefully about our practice during these periods of acute difficulty. And although I know people are looking for very distinct messages from this study, but as you point out, most studies can't provide that. But I think by understanding the risks, we can begin to make judgments and communicate them. And that's really what we're going to tease out in the rest of this webinar. So we're going to move to a few specific questions, if we may. So I'm going to ask Dimitri about, we've had two questions come in about the regional anesthesia group. And the first question is, who was undergoing regional anesthesia? And the second question for you is, with, with a significant mortality rate in that group, again, what do, how should we interpret that information for, for the remainder of the pandemic and any future um, peaks? Um, th thank you for the question. So overall, uh, of our patients, uh, about 55% of the patients that had regional anesthesia were undergoing orthopedic procedures and a further 25% were having caesarean sections. And then uh, the remainder, uh, which is only about 20%, were having a, a combination of different types of, of uh, procedures, including hernia repairs and minor, other minor procedures. Uh, and, and what our data shows is that across these different uh, specialty groups within the regional anesthesia, the rates of pulmonary complications were quite consistent um, and generally they were around 45 to 55% of patients have pulmonary complications after regional anesthesia. And mortality is around 20% in all the patients that have regional anesthesia. So my interpretation of this would be that um, we need to interpret this data cautiously because we don't know uh, how these patients were selected. It may be that these are the most um, complex high-risk patients who've been um, managed with regional anesthesia. But it does suggest that you can't assume that just by doing a regional anesthesia, you will avoid the risks of pulmonary complications. Um, these patients are equally at high risk of these as, as the other patients in the study. So regional anesthesia on its own is not probably the, the, the solution to reducing pulmonary complications and mortality. Thank you very much, Dimitri. Um, to move on to the second submitted question, and this is for Haytham. So th th there was a, a number of patients undergoing elective surgery who appeared to have a preoperative infection, which now seems like quite a striking thing to do. Um, do you have any feeling about what, how those patients may have been included in this study? Uh, yeah, so it, it is important for the listeners to know that it was a very, very small number of patients. It was 22 patients in specific that had a preoperative diagnosis of 
uh, COVID and still underwent uh, elective surgery. And when we dig into details of these 22, because we were curious, like, like everybody was, why would you proceed with surgery with somebody with COVID? And what we know for sure is um, some of these uh, patients were uh, for cancer. So the big proportion of them were cancer surgeries. And uh, there was a few of them were obstetrics so needed cesarean sections. And there was a few for injuries. And what we think is these injuries are not exactly your immediately, uh, the injury that needs immediate attention, but a patient that needed a scheduled surgery in a timely fashion, if you want. So, to, you know, I think there is multiple reasons why these, this small number appeared. I think uh, a lot of these patients are likely were asymptomatic or had minimal symptoms. And the surgeons and the team taking care of them was probably weighing the benefits of, uh, of doing surgery in a timely fashion, not letting the cancer progress or not letting the injury get worse if it's uh, postponed further. And in the setting of a patient being asymptomatic, they made a decision at that point in time. And, and my guess is also a lot of them happened in the early phases of the pandemic where there was still a lot of unknowns. And the, the last point I wanna make is to just to add to what Dimitri said, uh, you know, we don't know. There's so much I know. We don't know if regional is really safe. I think there remains questions to be answered in that domain. But, you know, I want people to think there could be three areas where why the mortality and, the, you know, the mortality and the outcomes are worse. It could be related to the patient themselves and could be a systematic reaction happening in the whole body, irrespective of the type of anesthesia. But it also could be that they catch infection after in the hospital that has a lot of COVID being transported by healthcare workers. And the third one is in a hospital that is being overwhelmed by COVID care, perhaps, and that's controversial, and I'm trying to throw it on purpose, perhaps we are providing less quality of care to these patients because our resources are directed in different directions. So I'll leave it at there. No, that's, that's very, thank you very much. Those are good, good thoughts. And um, thank you for going back and, and commenting on the regional anesthesia. Um, we'll keep going. Helen, we're going to talk about pulmonary embolus rates because they were between 2 and 3% in this study. Uh, and uh, Is that what you'd expect in, in, in normal practice? Or, or, or is it, are they higher or lower? I think that's really interesting uh, point from the study. The numbers are small in the study, uh, 4P, but still it shows a significantly higher rate than what you'd expect normally. Um, so from the pre-existing literature, you'd expect in the region of 1% or less, whereas we're looking at patients having a higher rate in this study. I think the group in particular that are interesting are those undergoing um, what was classed as minor procedures. So um, of the group that had PEs, this included two patients who had appendicectomies, two patients who had perianal abscesses, and two patients who had hernias. And they would be patients who would normally be classed as, as relatively low risk. And what, there is a lot of unknowns. We don't know what the patient's intrinsic risk factors were for PE. Um, and also, as Haytham said, the patients that were operated in, the, in this time period may have been different from patients that we normally operate on because we were trying non-operative strategies. Um, these patients, we don't know if these were patients who had had a trial of conservative management for appendicitis and had had a prolonged course and then had an appendicectomy. So those kind of questions I think will be interesting to tease out. Um, I think in terms of practice, um, 
the suggestion that there's a higher rate of PE does fit with the data coming out from critical care literature as well. Um, but I think the key message again is that we need to really try and protect patients perioperatively from contracting COVID. We need to avoid operating on people who have COVID if, if possible. So if surgery can wait, we should screen patients for COVID and make sure they're negative if we can. Um, and I think we need to look at um, in kind of risk factor scoring systems and that should we include COVID as a risk factor for, for a venous thromboembolism? I think that is something that we definitely need to look at. And then going forward, kind of further questions are, would there be a role for things like extended um, thromboprophylaxis for these patients? And that's not something that the study answers, but it's just one of the many questions that I think the study raises. Thank you very much. Stephen, I was wondering if you could please comment on, on your practice um, and how do, do you have any, do you use routine prophylaxis for pulmonary embolus? And do you think this study needs to make recommendations or do more work on the PE rate? Okay, uh, thank you very much. Uh, we are currently uh, operating on emergencies that cannot be managed uh, conservatively. And what we're doing is uh, there's nothing changed in our practice. Uh, if you are at a risk of uh, pulmonary embolism, DBT, we go with all the prophylaxis as we do uh, by our hospital protocol. And then if you are low risk, of course, we're going to use mechanical early mobilization. But I think from the findings, it will be great uh, if we can recommend uh, DVT prophylaxis. There shouldn't be anything changed uh, because of the COVID. Uh, yes, it's a novel disease, it's a novel virus. We are, we are learning a lot. A uh, lot of studies are going to come out. Uh, but I, I think that we should not say because of COVID and the patient there is a indication for prophylaxis. You say, I'm not gonna do DVT prophylaxis and pulmonary embolism prophylaxis, and therefore, because it's a COVID, I think we should do uh, the prophylaxis. We cannot recommend based on this result, but when there is indication for DVT and pulmonary embolism uh, prophylaxis, we should go ahead and do it. Uh, thank you very much. I'm going to cut to a live question that's coming from Daniel Schmuckler in South Africa. Um, Haytham, we'll go to you for this um, before going back to Stephen. So Haytham, Daniel has asked that they are headed into a lockdown. So their rates are increasing. And, and you know, you and I are perhaps in the UK and USA. We're perhaps facing a, a, the, the concept of a second wave. Do you think during that time when the cases are increasing, should we continue operating? Or is that the time to decrease operating? What, what do you think? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and, you know, we can build on some of the data and also some of the experiences. If your projection and a lot of the modeling is really important in that, in your area, wherever you are, if the projection is you're going to have a peak of the SARS-CoV-2, I would personally really encourage that you immediately postpone all elective surgery that can be postponed and only operate with what cannot be delayed, whether it's emergency surgery or really time-sensitive operations. And that has many reasons for it. Some of it is coming from this study that's saying 
operating on those patients during this period has consequences in terms of pulmonary complications and mortality for that specific patient. So those patients will understand if their surgeries is postponed. And the second area has to do with preparing your institution to uh, optimize capacity. Uh, I mean, I, I, there's no exaggerations in, in what I'm gonna say now, but at Mass General, at the peak of it, we had 190 patients at one in the same day who required ventilators. We had to use every single ventilator we have in the recovery room, in the operating rooms, to give it to these patients. So it's also a little bit of a, of a capacity distribution. So if you're gonna be needing all your vents, you cannot predict even if a patient has a small surgery, sometimes they get complications. And if you don't have a vent to rescue them, that will not be in anybody's interest. So this is the two sides of the answer for the question, which is, and the answer is, I would encourage to postpone all elective surgery when possible. Thank you. And you've touched upon the surgeon um, supporting whole hospital resilience there. And we're going to come back to that toward the end, because that is a, is a really key point we need to tease out. Stephen, can I ask you, as your cases are increasing in Tamale Teaching Hospital, what sort of surgery are you still doing and what have you postponed? Uh, currently, as um, we're talking now, we've uh, uh, postponed elective surgery, except cancer surgeries that, for example, before the COVID, we finished everything, we finished new adjuvant chemotherapy, they are on the list. Uh, my hospital management, my medical director says that, well, uh, we can't postpone those cases. Uh, let's go ahead and operate on them. Because if you're waiting for the COVID, by the time uh, the COVID is over, metastasis. So apart from these cases, we're doing only emergencies that cannot wait. Dying emergencies are the cases we are doing. Uh, to the question from South Africa, uh, I want to say something, one sentence on that. Uh, as uh, the Dr. Kafarani said, uh, you have to look at your resources. For example, in my hospital, we've got uh, three ventilators, seven, a population of seven million. Okay, the whole of the Northern Ghana. So really we want to reserve those uh, ventilators for patients that uh, may need it. So if you're just going to do all operations you are not careful, you don't select your cases very well, you may end up uh, depleting all your resources and at the time you need it, you may not get them. Thank you, Stephen. We, we have had several questions. Rohan, this is a question for you. We've had several questions coming in about what specialties and what operations were included in this um, paper. Rohan, what, do you know where we can find that information in the paper? Thank you, Neil. So, Mortality and pulmonary complication outcomes by specialty can be found in table two, table three, sorry, in the main paper. And the operations by specialties performed can be found in the supplementary table two in the appendix. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to go to Dimitri. Dimitri, we've had a few questions, come, um, comments and questions coming in saying, well, this is the mortality that is faced in emergency and high risk elective surgery. And so this is just a selection bias. 
Um, you wrote in the paper about, about the pre-COVID era and those comparisons. Could you summarise those for us to help us contextualise this paper, please? Um, so it's true that in this study, we have only included patients with uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection. So we didn't collect data on uh, patients undergoing surgery who did not have SARS-CoV-2. But there's a very well-established literature on uh, mortality rates after surgery in the pre-COVID era. And uh, we can just mention a few examples. So for example, in the United Kingdom, the National Emergency Laparotomy Audit, which captures every emergency operation in the country, um, identified that in high-risk patients, so these are uh, patients who have a predicted mortality of greater than 10%, um, the overall mortality rate is only 15%. Another example is in the Global Surge 1 study, uh, we found that patients who had a midline laparotomy, an emergency midline laparotomy, globally, the overall mortality rate is about 17%. Um, so these are the mortality rates that we know from um, relatively high-risk groups of patients based on high-quality international studies. Um, and, and obviously, we have found that uh, in this population of um, patients with SARS-CoV-2, the mortality rate is 24%, which is significantly higher. So I think it's unlikely that this is just a very high-risk group of patients because uh, generally in the literature, high-risk patients, big groups of high-risk patients tend to have low mortality rates. So we think it is likely that the SARS-CoV-2 is significantly contributing to that mortality. Thank you, Dimitri. And whilst, whilst we're on risk stratification, Rohan, could you please put up the table with um, the age breakdown in it? So, Dimitri, I'd just like you to make a comment about the ages, if you could, please. Uh, and really, this is the breakdown of age and, and how we should interpret this data. So, uh, what you can see on your screens now is a breakdown of mortality at 30 days by some broad age groups. Um, and what's striking is that although there was a, a very small number of patients aged under 29 years, only 56 patients, none of these patients died. Um, there's been a few questions about children, and I think in our data on this occasion, we only had 10 children in the data. So uh, hopefully as the study progresses, we will have more data, and I know there's a pediatric group who are keen to analyze and present that data for you. Um, but the highest mortality rate you can see is in the patients aged over 70 years. Mortality increases it with age and is highest in that group aged 70 years and greater. And when we've included this in the multivariable model, um, we've found that age is one of the most significant predictors of mortality overall, independent of other factors. So um, I think we need to think very carefully when we're contemplating operating on older patients, older than 70 years, who we know have got SARS-CoV-2 infection, or who are in environments where there is a risk that they may get infected with SARS-CoV-2 after surgery. Thank you. Stephen, could I ask you please, as Dimitri mentioned, um, there weren't that many pediatric patients in this study, but there were some. Is, in, your ex, in your practice, is this, a, is this an area that's relevant to pediatric 
practice either directly or indirectly through cancellations? Uh, with a pediatric surgery, uh, we go in as usual emergencies, uh, congenital abnormalities, and uh, so far we don't have data on how many of them are infected with the COVID because we don't routinely uh, test mothers and then the infants. So I think it's going to be very crucial and it's very important also uh, to involve the pediatric surgeons because there may be some things that we may learn from the experience of uh, the pediatric surgeons. Thank you very much. Let's move on to our second table. Rohan, if you could bring up the table on comorbidities, please. So I'm going to ask Lizzie just to summarise um, what our comorbidity data um, describes. So what we sh uh, found when we looked at the comorbidities that uh, patients had was that um, as the number of significant comorbidities increased from none to one to two, the percentage of patients who died within 30 days um, went up quite dramatically from 7% with, no, uh, with patients with no comorbidities to 17% with patients with one to 29% for patients with two. And this was also seen in the number of patients who, uh, who had pulmonary complications as well. So, um, and this was statistically significant also. So this means that we really must take a lot of care when we're considering, as always, our duty of care to our patients and balancing risk versus benefit. And uh, as patients who have uh, two or more comorbidities have a um, more than threefold, fourfold chance of um, dying within 30 days after an operation uh, when they have perioperative SARS-CoV-2. Thank you. So leaving that slide up for a moment, please. I, I'm going to come to, I'm going to ask Haytham a question about emergency surgery, then Helen a question about elective surgery. So Haytham, starting with emergency surgery, we've seen the impact of age and comorbidities. Um, as, as the various peaks come and then begin to decrease around the world and this concept of second waves, I'm just wondering how I can use this information, especially since in the emergency setting, testing, may, maybe you, know, you don't have as much time to do the testing and, and there are emergent life-threatening conditions. So it's a difficult question, I apologise in advance, but could you give us a, a glimpse on how we can begin to interpret this information in the emergency setting, please? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question, uh, Anil. And, and I think there is uh, probably three areas we need to consider on how to use this data. One of them, like one thing that uh, we're discovering, looking at the number of patients who were diagnosed with SARS-CoV-2 postoperatively is really high. And that's not surprising. That also reflects our own experience here uh, in our hospital. So the, the message I think to the healthcare workers is for patients who need emergency surgery in the middle of a pandemic, treat everybody as they are positive. Uh, when you receive your trauma patient in the trauma bay, uh, until you prove they're not SARS-CoV-2, you'd better have your full PPE on, not only to protect yourself, but also to protect uh, other patients from transferring the infection to them. 
that's one area. The second area, I think, um, has to do with uh, counseling the patient and their families. I think setting the expectations correctly up front um, is important. Patients will come in, they'll be very anxious, their families will be very anxious because they have an emergency diagnosis, but they're also coming either with a diagnosis of COVID or they're coming to the hospital in the middle of a pandemic of COVID-2. I think those numbers replace the anecdotes that we've used in the early phases of the pandemic by having some concrete data to say, yes, you are a 70-year-old with COPD and diabetes who needs their colon out. The data suggests your mortality could be as high as 35%. And, and that will you know, set the course of the recovery in the right direction in terms of expectation. And the third thing is what we alluded to in the beginning. You know, there are emergencies and there are other emergencies. And what I mean by that is, in case you have a patient that can be managed non-operatively, whether with a percutaneous drain for their abscess, or whether with purely antibiotics, or an IR intervention, interventional radiology intervention, move your needle towards non-operative a little bit and see if you can get the patients by without surgery, but without delaying surgery if they really need it. Thank you. And, and the same question over to Helen, please. In the, in the lead up and during a pandemic, if I've got an older patient or I've got someone with comorbidities, but they have an operable cancer, what are my ethical dilemmas and how should we proceed? I think what Haytham said was very correct about how it informs your discussion with patients. And I think, you know, one of the key things is incorporating this data into the consent process when discussing risks and discussing options. Um, I think the data coming from COVID surge cancer is going to really inform this a little bit more and give us some more data on the elective setting, because obviously the numbers be far greater in the elective setting uh, for cancer patients. I think, you know, looking at the previous modeling study, we have to remember that there is a significant impact on the number of cancelled surgeries uh, worldwide uh, with, with, you know, tw an estimated 28 million uh, surgeries cancelled worldwide. And putting that paper with this current data, I think the key question is how can we safely reintroduce and restart surgical services in the recovery phase? Because yes, we need lots of healthcare investment and research investment in the actual acute phase, but there's going to be a need for significant um, support for healthcare as we go forward into the recovery phase, um, whether or not there are further surges to try and um, deliver surgical care to these patients in a safe manner. Certainly the Royal Colleges, the Surgical Royal Colleges have issued guidance um, on pathways to try and uh, reduce patients' risk of nosocomial transmission um, and try and, and kind of cocoon patients and, and ring fence surgical care. Um, so I think going forward, we really need to focus on ways to create pathways to protect our surgical patients perioperatively um, to really consider uh, which patients need an operation right now. But as the pandemic progresses, the, the ability to kind of postpone surgery may reduce as things kind of go on for some time. Um, whereas it's different in the acute phase with the surge. Considering the population levels of COVID at the time and the nosocomial risk in hospitals at the time, I think is going to be key as well. Thank you, Helen. Now we're entering the last 10 minutes. So before I'm going to give a some 
live news about the next studies, both that are going to come out from this group and we're going to launch and how you can take part. Before we do that, I'd like to go around everyone and, and ask um, how briefly how you're going to use this to consent your patients, this information, or what advice you'd give me to consent my patients. But I'd like you to also summarize one unknown area, one area that we haven't answered. Um, and I'm going to, I'll start with Lizzie on that one, please. Okay, thanks, Sunil. So with regards to consenting patients, this um, study has given us some um, definitive hard numbers based on high quality data on large number of patients that will open the door to a, a very honest and frank discussion with your patients that um, given if they do have comorbidities, um, depending on what type of operation you're speaking to them about, you can explain and be able to quote some figures to give them an idea of what the risks are. And of course, take into account um, where you are at your local community risk, your hospital, how much strain and stress the hospital's um, uh, intensive care department is on. But in the end, we'll be able to, um, instead of uh, just saying to patients that this is more riskier would actually be able to give them um, some more percentages, which is very often what patients want to know, what are my risks so that they can choose. Um, and uh, in response to your second question, the areas that we do not know, uh, the main area would be if a patient is diagnosed with SARS-CoV-2, um, how long can we wait until we can safely operate on them, even if they have recovered from this? And it certainly is an unknown. And um, in the future, we, we of course, will be exploring that and um, uh, seeing what is the safe uh, level time. Thank you, Lizzie. We've launched our, our single poll and we just want to ask you how you would use this data. So please, please do complete it. Stephen, could I ask you, how are you going to use this to consent patients and what unknown area would you like to answer next? Uh, okay. Uh, to consent patients, you have to explain to them based on this, uh, the high quality data that we publish, to be able to consent to them whether uh, they can wait, whether the conservative management is what will be the best option and then also let them know the complications and then uh, once they are COVID positive again you have to talk to them that yes you are in the hospital environment in emergency situation you are not diagnosed with COVID but it's something that we need to think about was in the, on admission in the hospital during uh, this pandemic. In our society you also need to Talk to the relatives of the patient, the extended family, because some decisions come from the extended family. So you don't have to ignore them. Again, our hospital management should also understand this result. That's why dissemination of this results or this paper will be crucial in our environment for them to understand that, oh, why are you not operating patient A? Why are you operating on this one? So that we all be uh, on the same page. Uh, the second question is, which is uh, the unknown area. Uh, yes, there are a lot of unknown area because the disease, uh, the virus is a novel. Uh, but I think one of the things we want to do as a global surgery or global COVID surge collaborative is to 
whether prophylaxis, pulmonary complication prophylaxis, like using the proposed drug that reduce uh, the severity of COVID, is a new area that we have to aim at to see whether really it will prevent uh, some of these complications, uh, the huge number of pulmonary complications that was uh, found in this study. Thank you, Stephen. Haytham, could you comment on how you'll consent your, your patients and what don't we know? Yeah, I think uh, I'm, I'm going to tailor my answer to emergency uh, surgery at this point. I'm going to say, in addition to setting the expectations of recovery from the get-go with the family and the patient, I do think in extremes of cases and patients in severe septic shock and patients who are have advanced age, a lot of comorbidities, that could actually help with the goals of care discussion and whether to proceed with the surgery at all, because definitely um, it, it can influence not only the uh, the quantity of life that we can we can preserve and we can save the patient, but the quality of life of for these patients after recovery. So that the, this data could be very helpful in terms of when we dig into more details. Yes, you know, they might survive their, you know, 70% survival, but the 30% looks like they have pulmonary failure to get off the vent, their tracheostomy, they got a feeding tube, they're in the rehab, might not be in the best interest of the patient too. So I think it will help these discussions be in more depth when we decide. In terms of what area, uh, you know, my mind is, is circling very quick. There's so many areas I'd like to know and looking at the details of the data. But one area in specific that I'm starting to think more about is, uh, you know, like, like, like you showed in, or we showed in the study of cancellations, there's a huge amount of canceled cases around the world. And there's a lot of these patients are COVID positive. So the question is, when is it safe to operate on a patient that is COVID positive? When can we put them back on the schedule for their cancer surgery or orthopedic surgery or gallbladder surgery? Uh, I, I'm not sure we have the data for it, but I'm definitely we should be working on that in my, in my humble opinion. Thank you. Dimitri, we've had some questions about risk stratification. So from the COVID surge data, how many patients are, are, have we got locked down and, and will we be able to risk stratify them further? So our first study that um, we, we've been presenting today included 1,100 patients uh, who were all operated in March. Um, and we've continued collecting data. We think we now have data on 4,500 patients in total who were SARS-CoV-2 positive and had an operation. Uh, so this increase in the sample size is going to allow us to undertake more sophisticated analyses. Um, so we're hoping to be able to look at, can we predict amongst the patients who we know have SARS-CoV-2 preoperatively, can we predict which of those patients will do well and which of those patients will do very poorly, and perhaps those are the patients who we need to think about postponing and delaying their surgery. And if patients develop SARS-CoV-2 after surgery, again, can we predict who will do well and who will do poorly to try and inform some of our post-operative care? Um, but the other thing that the increase in the sample size will allow us to do, which I know many of you have been asking about, is to try and tailor um, these analyses much more to individual surgical specialties so that you have the data you need to inform your care for your patients so whether that's orthopedics um, whether that's obstetric care 
uh, head and neck surgery, hopefully this, this large number of patients will allow us to give you more granular data that you need to, to inform your practice. So thank you very much for continuing to enter your data. Uh, and we hope to lock down the database uh, on the 15th of June for the next analysis. So please upload your data before the 15th of June um, so we can include it in that analysis. Thank you, Dimitri. Rohan, three things from you. Could you please launch um, the results of the poll? Um, I have a question for you. Do you think as, as you look toward your first year of being a, a doctor, how you might use this information as a junior? And then thirdly, could you then wrap up with the, um, the housekeeping information? And that's before I, I will give a final um, bit of new information about the coming studies. Thank you, Neil. Um, so firstly, everyone should be able to see the results from the poll on the screen now. So 34% um, have found this useful in helping them inform patients about the risk of their surgery, um, very much following the theme of what we've discussed today. Um, following that, the next highest is those that have found an increase in their own knowledge and then those that have changed their threshold for who's operated on. Um, regarding the second question, as I look forward, um, I think this data will be really important in helping better inform me and others in similar positions to understand the dangers and consequences for patients who are operated during this pandemic. Um, so patients that are seen in hospital with symptoms and complications, we can better identify and isolate and escalate them to manage. And it would also increase our own understanding of the various pulmonary complications of pneumonia, acute respiratory distress syndrome, and sort of understanding the nuances and differences between each of them. Um, and to finally, before I pass it back over to Anil, um, so all participants who registered and are currently watching will be sent a link to a short survey um, to the email that you registered with. After completing this, you will then be able to access your CPD certificate. You can also watch this, the previous webinar and all future webinars we have on our YouTube channel that can be found by searching for COVID search on YouTube. Um, the Zoom on-demand link that will be in the follow-up email again will um, also enable you to watch this webinar. And this webinar, like previously, is also available as a podcast and that can be found on iTunes and Spotify. But please allow around 48 hours just to ensure that we've uploaded this. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rohan. Before I thank my panelists, um, I'll, I'll say that our next webinar will be based on when our next set of results are mature. So we're aiming to only do webinars when we have data to give you. In terms of the future projects and outputs, to summarize, we are days away from launching a downloadable patient information leaflet that is generically branded and we want people to be free to download that um, and give it to patients in whatever environment they are to give them more information around surgery during this pandemic. There have been lots of questions about what the impact is when one considers the patients who didn't get an infection. And the COVID surge cancer study, which is now beginning to lock down and has 9,000 patients, looked at elective cancer surgery during the pandemic and identified those patients who subsequently developed pulmonary complications, those who didn't. 
that may, that data is being matured and we are hoping by the end of the month to launch another webinar and, and, and disseminate that information. As people look to start up surgery again, there have been a lot of questions coming in about where that surgery should be performed. And that cancer data will hopefully answer the concept of hot versus cold centers and begin to direct people um, into how they can set up their services because really the world is now moving back to starting to do elective surgery. As we do look to start elective surgery, we will not be able to completely separate it from hospitals where there is COVID. And, and as, we, as I speak, spoke with Stephen, he and I are collaborating on launching a global randomized trial, looking at drug prophylaxis of patients undergoing elective and emergency surgery. Um, that we're looking to launch an adaptive trial uh, and really, which means we can put new medications in and drop medications which aren't working. But we see that there's the, the, as the next setup phase alongside hospital infrastructure. What else can we do to protect patients? We would be delighted to hear from anyone who feels that they have the, the capacity and, the, and could seek out resources to run and contribute to a, a major trial that will need at least 6,000 um, patients. So I'd like to end by just thanking, thanking all the panellists, especially Stephen, Haytham and Helen, but also to the inner management team. Um, and I hope that information helps us go forward and, and really make surgery as safe as possible for our patients. So thank you very much, everybody, and enjoy the rest of your days. Goodbye.